engineering is not necessarily applying physics and math and complicated equations, but rather just a way to problem solve. Responsible engineering needs to be done taking into account all the different stakeholders that may be affected by it. Nowhere is that more important than medicine. Hello, I'm Sue Nelson, and welcome to the Create the Future podcast, brought to you by the Queen Elizabeth Prize for Engineering, celebrating engineering visionaries and inspiring creative minds. Today's guest, Khalil Ramadi, was named an under-35 MIT Tech Review Innovator in 2020 and is an advocate of neuromodulation therapies, which stimulate the brain's neural circuits to treat diseases such as Parkinson's. But the type of therapies he works on offer less invasive methods than surgically inserting an electronic chip implant in the brain, for instance, and can involve simply swallowing a pill. Or, as he's put it, hacking the brain through the stomach. Khalil is Assistant Professor of Bioengineering and Director of the Laboratory for Advanced Neuroengineering and Translational Medicine at NYU Abu Dhabi. And he speaks Arabic, Spanish, and thankfully for me, English as well. Khalil, welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much, Sue. It's really a pleasure to, to, to be here. Thank you for having me. Now, I mentioned neuromodulation therapies, gave one example with um, a chip for Parkinson's. What are the other diseases and areas that neuromodulation therapies um, can actually help within the body? There really are a wide variety of diseases where the nervous system comes into play. And so I, I'll I can share a little bit about where the current thinking on this field is, but I should make the note that it really is an evolving field of research. And there are increasingly more diseases that we originally, you know, did not connect with the nervous system that we are indeed finding have um, some sort of neural dysfunction component to them. But at least, you know, as it relates to some of our work, um, we are really primarily interested on the diseases that arise from some sort of neural dysfunction in the gastrointestinal tract or in the gut. And as you might imagine, you know, the gut is one of the primary ways that we, that we interface with the world. You know, if we don't eat for a while, we get hangry. You know, good conversations always happen over good food. And so it really has the central effect, uh, which I think goes to speak to how interconnected the gut and the brain are. So other diseases that we might tackle with neuromodulation, at least as it relates to the gut, are digestive diseases, um, anything that, you know, changes metabolism, uh, for example, diabetes, obesity in the case of uh, regulating how we might control hunger or how we digest food. Um, there's also a whole basket of uh, immunologic diseases or autoimmune diseases that are now recognized to take part uh, or at least in part uh, start off in the colon or in the large intestine. And so you can even do some sort of immune modulation through the nervous system in the colon as well. That's just a bit of a taste on, on, on what, where the current understanding is. Briefly, how do these therapies work? Let's, let's start with the ones that perhaps people are more familiar with, a chip implant. How do they actually work? Neuromodulation therapies essentially try to leverage the fact that the language through which the nervous system communicates is essentially electricity. You know, the electricity that we get, that we plug in our computers and phones to charge to, um, that is controlled by the flow of electrons. Um, in the body, what we have is a flow of ions. Um, and so these ions basically create electrical um, signals or circuits. And that's how we have information relayed 
from one part of the body through neurons in a quick and efficient manner. So when we come to neuromodulation, you know, technically there are multiple different ways you might modulate neurons, which is really what we're saying. One of the most popular ways, even historically, if you look back, has been through the use of electricity. And so predominantly that has involved in placing some sort of conducting material, for so an electrode, and then applying some sort of electrical current or voltage through it. To your point about other sort of electronic chips, I mean, there are a host of different, a number of different reasons why we might do that. Some chips act more as sensors where the primary goal is to gather data, while others might actually involve the delivery of certain kinds of stimuli. And so electricity is one example of such stimuli. So it's looking at a body as an electronic circuit, effectively, which then makes sort of an engineering mind such a, a sort of good way to, to approach potential therapies. Absolutely. I think that's a great metaphor. And there's actually, I, I just ordered a book yesterday in the mail, um, no affiliation, but there's a recent book about you know, electricity in the body and how our understanding of it has evolved over the ages. I think there's a, a little fun fact that, uh, you know, electric eels or electric rays were used as early as in the time of the Greeks. And I think there's at least a anecdotal story that Aristotle would try to use these electric eels to zap people who were in chronic pain, which indeed is, you know, one, one, one kind of therapy that we have for chronic pain is very selective stimulation of certain nerve bundles. So, you know, it, it goes way back. We, we are kind of reimagining it. I think this, this approach of, like you mentioned, applying an engineering mindset and developing new kind of tools is really where the novelty comes in, that engineering advances have enabled us to do things like put all these electronics on a chip rather than walk around with, you know, giant aquariums of, of electric eels. <laughs> That's amazing to, to realise how far back that goes, because when I was doing some research for this, I you know, you mentioned how it was an evolving field. And I was interested to discover that, yeah, this is a, you know, a pretty recent field with the first implant for pain relief being performed in the late 19. 19- 60s. So as this is, Aristotle aside, a pretty recent field of of medicine and bioengineering, why do you think the current methods need upgrading, essentially? This is a fundamental balance we always strive to when developing new therapies of how much do you need to understand how these therapies work so long as they improve patient health. And so with that sort of mindset, I think a lot of the early clinical efforts, you know, the, the one maybe that is most well, one of the very obvious that comes up is, for example, electroshock therapy that was depicted in the movie One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest with, with Jack Nicholson. Of course. Yes. And so, you know, that, that was a approach for treating psychiatric conditions. And, you know, the, despite sort of the crude nature of the actual therapy and obviously dramatized a little bit in that movie, you know, it did help some patients and it is, still is a therapy that we use today. But if you were to ask the scientific question on why does it work, that you will find them a number of different reasons. And you'll be surprised how many therapies we still have for uh, neuromodulation that we use even day in and day out in the clinic and still don't have a fundamental understanding of why they work. You know, in the last 20 years, we've had this other huge jump in, in the neuroscience field with the advent of things like optogenetics or other technologies that allow us to basically really understand how these different types of neurons in the body and how they are connected. And so luckily for us, given that we are primarily interested in neuromodulation, that understanding goes hand in hand with being able to develop tools 
more tailored to the specific, you know, actions we're trying to achieve. And it's interesting how, you know, you mentioned optogenetics, which is, is using light. And one area that you're specifically interested in is is sort of getting to the brain via the, the stomach. Mm-hmm. And you've often called called this this sort of a bio nudge that looked like a pill which and it does it just looks like a sort of headache tablet and you call them ingestible electronics so what's inside that really small pill just like the pills that we take today are basically loaded with different kinds of uh, medicines or drugs so these pills essentially act instead of delivering chemical stimuli or substances they deliver electrical stimuli going back to you know what the essence of neuromodulation is. We use electricity as a means of zapping specific cells along the gut to achieve some sort of outcome. And so these pills basically carry different types of electronic circuitry on the inside that is not exposed to the body, but rather the part that really connects with the body are these electrodes that we have on the outside. And so that's through which these electrical signals pass. I should note that unlike you know pills that we take where you actually have some substance that is entering the body and exiting it, um, there is no such thing. So in, in this case, you basically have an electrical signal or a potential, so a voltage or a current that goes into tissue, and you're not actually delivering or depositing any sort of metal or electrodes or electronics in the body permanently. So are you sort of effectively doing microelectric shocks from the inside of the body instead of what used to be done in massive voltages on the outside of someone's brain. 100% correct. Yes. Um, I think the other thing that I will add there, though, is that the, the reason why we are so interested in the GI tract specifically is because if you think about what we call inside or outside the body, by many, mecha- by many measures, the GI tract is, even though it runs through us, is in fact uh, considering the inside of our body considered not part of the body, right? We have bacteria that live there, but we don't get infected. We eat all sorts of things that aren't sterile. Um, and so as a result, you know, mouth to rectum basically is kind of this sweet spot of being able to access inner points in our body while at the same time still not having to uh, have some of the considerations that we do when we implant things under the skin even, right? Given that we don't want, we want things to stay clean or not infected. And so that's just one little tidbit that I want to note that's a bit unintuitive about what we call inside or outside the body. It must also be a very delicate balance because we know that the stomach acid, you also know that if you take a normal sort of headache pill, the pill's designed to dissolve in a certain way in order to deliver the chemicals at the you know the right point and the right right amount if you've got miniature electronics in there how do you protect the electronics from the stomach acid while still actually allowing it to deliver small bursts of electricity as and when you need it yeah that's that's a great question and uh, i think this is you you hit the nail on the head that is one of the difficulties with targeting the stomach and the GI tract. And I'll even go one step further and say that, yes, for example, in the stomach, you have the considerations of acid. But then if you continue down the GI tract, what you basically have is a series of segments, each with its own challenges that are very distinct. And so while you can design from an engineering standpoint systems that are mechanically robust enough and chemically robust enough to, for example, avoid degradation or avoid breaking down, 
that challenge is compounded by the fact that you need to do that for multiple different segments as well. And so there it becomes a question of basically asking how we might design devices that can be ingested in a collapsed state, have them sort of unfold to do whatever they need to do. And that unfold can be literal or just in terms of a mechanism, and then be able to, again, go back to being collapsed and to be able to be excreted safely. But that, that's a major challenge that we have. And on what stage are you at with these devices? Our work is definitely ongoing. I think we have prototypes that we have put in preclinical testing have been going quite well. And then I think, you know, towards, maybe this is a bit anticipating a question you might ask later, but getting towards ultimate wider scale deployment or access to these, I think we also need to grapple with questions on, you know, how long do they stay in, in, in the GI tract? How long can they perform their function? And whether, you know, do we really want to be excreting a, one electronic pill a day? How are we going to retrieve these? Are these going to go down the toilet and be flushed? It's probably not a great idea. So there are other questions there that I think beyond showing the use case, which I think is where some of our work has focused now and has been quite positive, I think the following steps need to take these practical considerations into mind as well. Now, you mentioned about you know, being an engineer. Your degree is in mechanical engineering and bioengineering from Pennsylvania State University. You have a master's in mechanical engineering at MIT. What made you lean towards bioengineering as, as a career in the area of, of medicine? I joke that if you, if you talk to high school me, I actually really wanted to work on planes. I loved aerospace. And as luck would have it, you know, I, I talked to a few people, some of my mentors, and they're saying, well, you know, SpaceX wasn't, SpaceX wasn't around at the time. And so they said, well, if you go down the aerospace, you're basically going to work for Airbus or Boeing. And so they said, why don't you stay a little bit more broad, do mechanical instead? And so I did that. And then, you know, a few years into mechanical, I think I kind of realized I missed biology. I think this is something that occurred to me as I went in and out of clinics just for checkups. And I think it's a bit of a humbling experience to whenever you go into a hospital and something that I really wanted to be a part of. And so that led me towards the bioengineering route, specifically with a focus on, on trying to you know, design technologies to have an impact on patient care and human health, but still applying sort of the mechanical engineering toolkit of building physical devices um, to perform different functions. And it's interesting that often when I've spoken to IO engineers, that desire, that the sort of human condition, the human body, the, the desire to, to help, it's definitely, you know, a common theme amongst engineers in, in this area that they, they really do see a sort of ethical point to their work. Although, to be fair, you know, most engineering has a, a sort of, you know, problem solving based aspect of it that, that, that is also there in helping people. In terms of your other areas of research is because it's so connected. If you're looking at these ingestible electronics that you could then deliver drugs in maybe a new way with something called neural drug delivery. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so I try to base projects in our lab on fundamental clinical needs. And so when we, you know, speaking on the ingestible pill front, there the, the, you're right, engineers like to think in terms of problem statements. The problem statement is that, you know, medicines have a lot of side effects and surgeries are invasive and, you know, have, uh, have recovery times and other off-target effects as well. And so the question there is, can we do things that are more targeted and less invasive than either of those? For the neural drug delivery space, I mean, that's an issue that 
also is kind of rooted in the problem of when you take drugs orally, they go everywhere. And so, for example, in, in Parkinson's disease, what you find is um, a lot of the medication that we that, that we take or that we have for these patients are uh, meant to supplement basically a deficiency in dopamine levels in a specific part of the brain. One of the main issues we face as patients get progressively more depleted in terms of dopamine in the circuit is that the actual basically pro-dopaminergic drugs that we take orally, you know, we have a pretty good mechanism of having them only be uptaken by the brain. But then within the brain, you start having basically too much dopamine uptake in regions that are perfectly healthy. And so again, you go back to this dopamine dysfunction. And so that's the sort of, you know, case study, I think that we are focused on, on asking the question of, can we deliver these drugs in a more targeted, more efficient manner? Now, there, what we've worked on have been basically developing probes or little tiny cannula or tubes that we can implant into the brain and leave chronically implanted. And, you know, we do a variety of engineering trickery to try to make these as small as possible, as flexible as possible, really with the goal of avoiding all these off-target effects as well. And so that's, that same approach can, can be translated over to other um, conditions like epilepsy, for example, where, again, you have this, um, this issue where the drugs we have, we take orally, they go everywhere, and they kind of don't enable a patient to fully sort of regain a quality of life without significant off-target effects. Let's go into that engineering trickery that you mentioned in terms of the probes for the brain. What do you actually do to improve them? The goal with anything in the brain is basically to, one, make it as small as possible, and two, to make it as inert as possible, to avoid any sort of long-term inflammation or reaction from the body. Um, There are, I guess I'll, I'll throw in a caveat that we do have some research and others are also working on trying to make these um, implants more living, more you know, made of basically um, biological materials that would really integrate. But that is, I think, a little bit still upstream in the experimental side. But so as far as these probes go, you know, you have a couple of different issues. So if you look back, for example, at some of the deep brain stimulation systems from the 1970s, which was the first generation of them, um, these probes were they tend to be roughly the size of a chopstick, right? So on the order of a couple of millimeters. Um, And the reason that they are that relatively big is that one, they need to be pretty rigid in terms of being able to be implanted. And they also need to be rigid in terms of being able to know where they are going for, you know, in terms of trajectory. So for example, the way that these probes are implanted in the brain is you basically have XYZ coordinates where you navigate to, and then you go in a little bit blind to a certain extent that you're not really you know, opening and exposing the whole brain. You're kind of just relying on them to go in in a certain way. And so one of the issues that we faced was as you make these probes smaller and smaller, now we're getting away from a chopstick size and we're ending up more speaking on something like a hair, right? So you take an individual strand of hair and try to poke that hair into, say, some yogurt or jello. of the time, it will not go in in a straight trajectory. It's going to go in all sorts of flimsy because it's not a mechanically robust structure. And so some of the engineering approaches that we've taken there have basically said, how can we make these probes smaller to make them um, less invasive, less reactive, less traumatic during insertion, while at the same time retaining their placement, for example. And so there um, we have some work uh, showing that just even applying a mechanical polish 
to this um, to this probe, but the tip can actually um, guide this probe in different ways. And so by rotating it, for example, on the way in, you can kind of basically guide in three dimensions where, where this little hair ends up. Funnily enough, that was one of my first thoughts would be that sharpen the, the tip. Sometimes, isn't it, it feels as if it takes a fresh, simple approach to something to get to the heart of it. And I think most engineering approaches in medicine that are successful that I have seen employ that exact mentality, right? Trying to really break down a problem and not over-engineer or apply too much technology to it, but rather go the opposite direction and say, what is the minimum amount of technology that I need to incorporate to achieve a certain goal? You're absolutely correct. So where did your love of engineering come from? Has it always been there or was it something from university onwards or was there a, a sort of a an event in your childhood that just made you think, I just love finding out how things work, hmm. fixing things? That's a, that's a great question. I, I don't think it was so much how things work. I think it was looking at how things were designed. And this is something that I think has evolved. But I, you know, what, what fascinates me in a certain way are problems. And I don't mean problems like um, big scale problems. I mean, just even looking at how individuals interact with technology, I think are really fascinating. Because I think I think everyone walking around the street has problems that they have come up with their own solutions for. And I don't think we do enough to acknowledge that. And this is, I think, something that we could do better for the younger generation to show them that engineering is not necessarily all applying physics and math and complicated equations, but rather just a way to problem solve. You know, I think responsible engineering needs to be done taking into account all the different stakeholders that may be affected by it. Nowhere is that more important than medicine, where I think that the really the role of engineers is, you know, has the potential to be this joining factor between the technical world, the clinical world, and the patient world as well. And did you really find that when you were interning at a hospital as part of your PhD? Because I saw that you, I love this ex expression that you, you've written in a blog, you, you called yourself an engineer in a white coat. <laughs> yeah, that was, uh, I don't want to call an identity crisis, but I definitely <laughs> felt like I had split personalities there. <laughs> No, I, I, so I, I, you know, I'm, I'm really grateful. I think for for experiences such as those that that I had during my PhD, because, you know, there you are basically immersed in the clinical world, and you get really a, a firsthand view of what happens when you try to incorporate new technologies in 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 the clinic, and you see that sometimes, really, the reason why new technologies or techniques might fail are not because they're not good or not because they don't work, but because they just don't fit into a specific culture in the clinic or hospital, or because you are, you know, assuming that certain people will do things when they don't need to. Like, a, you know, for example, like if you try to add any sort of technology saying, you know, we can actually reduce the presence of disease or side effect X for patients in the hospital, nurses just have to do this one thing and it'll only take one minute per patient, forget it, that's not going to happen. Right. And it's especially not going to happen if you approach this without actually consulting with the nurses first. Right. So, again, it comes back to uh, these technologies don't exist in a vacuum. They have to fit into a culture that already exists. And so engaging with the people that are part of that culture, I think, is a crucial component in, in what we do as engineers. And engineering is all about technology and innovation and seeing connections. And there have been some amazing innovations that have been awarded the Queen Elizabeth Prize for, for engineering. 
I mean, this is a really interesting area as well. But is is there a sort of um, a type of of engineering that that you would like to see win the prize one day? I'm not sure. I mean, I'll be biased and say that I think uh, the kind of work that we do in terms of neuromodulation less invasively is is really cool. What I've really enjoyed, honestly, seeing the the recent winners of the Queen Elizabeth Engineering Prize has been seeing that all these technologies have really impacted patients. And I think this is something that, again, the engineering world is sometimes not blind to, but sort of focuses more on the development of technologies that are cool or sexy, rather than focusing on which ones have actually gone on to impact patients. I'll, I'll have to get back to you on a specific one. Khalil Ramadi, thank you very much for joining me on the Create the Future podcast. Thank you very much, too. Really, really enjoyed our chat. Me too. Find out more about the Queen Elizabeth Prize for Engineering by following QE Prize on Twitter and Instagram or visit qeprize.org. Thanks for listening and join us again next time.